from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. And these goats go and they see a coffee shrub and they start eating the beans from the coffee shrub and then they get super excited. And Kaldi is like, well, what is going on here? This week on our show, a conversation with religious studies scholar Jamel Velji, talking about the Islamic origins of coffee and representations of the Islamic world in coffee marketing, past and present. And if you're itching to get out in the garden, Josephine McRobbie talks with horticulture professor Lucy Bradley with some tips to get you started. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Earth Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Renee Reed is back with Earth Eats News. Hello, Renee. Hi, Kate. Midwest state legislatures are looking to put limits on eminent domain to protect farmland and stop utilities companies from crossing their states with pipelines and power lines. Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports. Iowa and Missouri are among the states looking at the idea of prohibiting any government from forcing farmers to sell land for a transmission line of electricity, natural gas, or any other power source. Missouri State Representative Mike Hafner says allowing the construction equipment needed to build the lines on the property would destroy farmland. When you compact soil, you can rip it up with a chisel plow, you can work it to death, but in some cases it's going to take years and years and years for that land to be productive again. Opponents of the measure say they are simply political, with conservatives using the idea to stop wind power transmission lines and liberals using them to block oil pipelines. Any such measure that goes through would likely face a court challenge. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media. Methane from decomposing plant and animal waste in landfills or compost piles could be used to power vehicles, including farm implements. The technology is under development at Missouri University of Science and Technology. Fatima Rizai is a professor of biochemical engineering at Missouri S&T. She is developing an onboard fuel tank that would separate carbon dioxide from biogas. That could be used to run our uh, vehicles. You know, if you are talking about farmers, you can use biogas to run your uh, tractor or other vehicles. Rizai says abundant animal waste and crop leftovers could make the technology economically viable in rural areas. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed. Last spring, when stay-at-home orders were new, a lot of people were looking to start home gardens. 
That seems to be the case this spring as well. Producer Josephine McRobbie had gardening on her mind when she spoke with Dr. Lucy Bradley, horticulture professor and extension specialist at North Carolina State University. Dr. Bradley has some truly practical tips for getting started. Historic varieties of long scarlet radish. Date of test, January 2012. I'm in my shed in North Carolina looking through some very old seed packets. I packed them six years ago when I moved from Indiana and I'm just now finding them while working to start a garden without ordering any new supplies. Parsley, packed for 2011, sell by 11.11. Well, I would start with your, well, I wouldn't start with your seeds, but since you already brought it up, let's talk about your seeds first. (laughs) Dr. Lucy Bradley is an urban horticulture professor and extension specialist at North Carolina State University. I called Dr. Bradley to get some tips for people who are interested in growing food gardens while under shelter-in-place orders. Many seeds stay viable for years after their expiration date. So if you have kept them in the dark, if you've kept them dry, if you've kept them from being in any extremes of temperature, they may well still be viable. So you can try a couple of them, put a wet piece of paper towel into a a Ziploc bag and put three to five seeds in that bag and see if they germinate or not. That's a great way to test what you've got to decide whether it is worth your time to go ahead and try and plant them out. Dr. Bradley is working from home this month. She's been tasked with managing new procedures for essential field labs, greenhouses, and gardens. We are in um, shelter in place. Uh, It's only the projects that are considered mandatory, where we have genetic material that we need to to protect for breeding or other projects that have have really high value that we have to figure out how to keep them going. A lot of the stuff that we've done, probably 95% of the research has just been put on hold. As an extension specialist, Dr. Bradley fields questions from budding gardeners around the state. She's seen an increase in inquiries in recent weeks. She thinks that beyond the practicalities, home gardening can help to manage anxieties in a difficult time. It's a whole different feeling and space to be in when you you have the skill and the resources to take care of yourself in some ways. Her own backyard, filled with fruit trees and veggie beds, is serving her and her neighbors well right now. We have plenty to share, which is a wonderful feeling in a time where, where things seem scarce. Dr. Bradley says that in her neighborhood, households are coordinating street-side seed exchanges. People are saying, hey, I've got some extra cucumber seeds. I'm going to put them in separate packages and I'll set them out, spaced out. Help yourself as you go by if you want one. She notes that it's important to sanitize seed packets and not to touch any but the ones you take. I asked Dr. Bradley how to proceed if you have limited green space at home. She says that for a novice gardener, this can actually be a positive. Excellent. That is the way to go. And it's a whole lot better, I think, to have a well-managed four-foot squared area than having a 10 by 10-foot squared area that you can't keep up with and the weeds are out competing your vegetables. And it's demoralizing every time you go out. It's, it's hard to have it be a joyful thing when it's, when it's such a heavy load. So start small. You can expand over time as, as you improve the soil and you manage the, the, the weeds and, and you get into the rhythm of the garden. She encourages gardeners to look at non-traditional yard space for planting. Yeah, you can nestle them in around your yard, too. You know, if you don't have a vegetable garden, that doesn't mean you can't grow vegetables. You can have an, you know, an ornamental landscape and still 
plop in, a, you know, a couple of lettuce here, a couple of, of, of kale there. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You, you, you can produce a lot of food in little niches. Apartments can be more challenging, but most vegetables and herbs can grow in a container. On the, the balcony, you have enough room to have some fairly large pots. The larger the pot you, you have, the, the easier it is for you. The more leeway you have in terms of watering. If you have a large pot and you water it really well, you can go a couple of days without, without watering it. If you have a really small pot, you may have to water it every day. For indoor spaces with sparse light, she recommends leafy greens or culinary herbs. They do better because we don't, we don't have to go through the whole life cycle, right? We're going to eat the leaves. We don't have to wait for the leaves to grow and then for it to produce a shoot and a flower and for that flower to produce a fruit and that fruit to mature. It's best to plant in a sunny spot, in flat or gently sloped areas, and in spots that are accessible to both the water source and your own daily routine. Uh, and I have you know, walkways from the street to, to my house. I have two different walkways that, that come in. And so I just kind of line those walkways with easy edibles that I can harvest on the way in from the office when I used to work at an office <laughs> before I moved home. You know, so I have lettuce and basil and, and all different you know, kinds of, of herbs along there. And so it's really easy to manage. So and I would go buy it every single day. It's not back in the back 40 where I, where I never go back there. As director of NC State's Urban Horticulture Program, Dr. Bradley helps to support community gardening, school gardens, and even therapeutic gardening programs. And they do everything from working with people with substance abuse issues to children with developmental disabilities to people who've had brain injuries, just all sorts of different ways that, that horticulture is used as a therapeutic tool. Our talk quickly moves from practical tips to a pep talk. Gardening is therapeutic in so many ways. It, you know, it's good physically. You're out there in the sunshine, lifting and stretching and carrying. It's great um, emotionally, just being able to, to to play and be creative in your in your own way, and having space to to just relax and enjoy the peace of. Of, of nature is really important. She sends me back to my vintage seed packs with a final nudge of encouragement. It's totally doable. It's easier every year. The hardest, the, the first year is the hardest year for sure. So, so don't um, despair you know, if you're trying to do it right now in less than optimal circumstances. You know, just starting is great because you, every, every time you work with the soil, you're improving it. So you're adding compost when you can, you're putting mulch on top to you know, suppress the weeds and that'll break down and improve the soil. Every year it gets better and easier. So uh, this is a good time to start. That was producer Josephine McRobbie speaking with Dr. Lucy Bradley, horticulture professor and extension specialist at North Carolina State University. I'm Jamel Velji, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Claremont McKenna College in California. Jamel Velji visited the IU campus in November of 2018. He gave a talk called 
Drinking the Orient, Meditations on Religion and Coffee, from the Yemen to San Francisco. Dr. Valji's work is situated at the intersection between Islamic studies and religious studies. He's the author of An Apocalyptic History of the Early Fatimid Empire, and he describes himself as someone who is obsessed with the apocalypse. I wanted to know how he got into the study of the Islamic origins of coffee. When we teach Islam, intro classes to the study of Islam, which is kind of my bread and butter, we have to spend about 25% of our time undoing these negative perceptions about Muslims. Perceptions about Muslims being terrorists, perceptions about Muslims being overtly sexual, about Muslim women being veiled and needing to be liberated. So we spend so much time undoing these perceptions. And I was thinking, well, how is it that we can actually get to what Islam is and look at this kind of dynamism about Islamic history, how Muslims live their lives, the vast diversity of 1.6 billion Muslims who inhabit the planet? How do we even begin to study this? There are many of us in Islamic studies and religious studies who are kind of rethinking Islamic studies from the ground up. And when I was doing my first book on the apocalypse and drinking way too much coffee, I was also reading about the history of coffee and thinking, wow, you know, there's so much work to be done in thinking about not just the legacy of coffee, this Islamic legacy of coffee, but looking at the ways in which coffee and Muslims have been tethered through, uh, throughout history, really. In thinking about these new ideas about how do we do Islam, um, one of my colleagues at Brown, Shazad Bashir, has written about how is it that Islamic studies, even the fundamental books that we learn about, actually tether Islamic history to a Western historical timeline that kind of reinscribes this idea of Islamic decline and then European ascendancy and then having things geographically outside of the Middle East becoming totally derivative or kind of weird with relation to what is, quote, central. So, yeah, and I thought that as I was staring at my cup of coffee, that this could provide a really interesting way of in kind of infusing the study of Islam with a new kind of dynamism that doesn't separate Muslims and non-Muslims in this kind of artificial way that we seem to experience today. And also that we should, I think, be more connected to the people who actually grow and harvest our coffee. Americans spend something like $5.1 billion on coffee every year. And we should be connected to those people. For those of us who aren't familiar with the origins of coffee in the Islamic world, can you talk about that? Sure. One of the great things I discovered about studying coffee is how many origin myths, how many legends there are (laughs) about coffee. There are two major origin myths that are ascribed to coffee. One is this idea about Sufi sheikhs. So 
we have the the first complete text on coffee is by this guy named Al Jaziri, and Al Jaziri writes in the 16th century, and he draws a lot of his history from this guy named Abdul Jafar, and there is a great translation about this origin myth from this person who's written this fabulous book on coffee called Ralph Haddix. And this is what this text says. Okay. At the beginning of this, the 16th century, the news reached us in Egypt that a drink called kahwa had spread in the Yemen and was being used by Sufi sheikhs and others to help them stay awake during their devotional exercises, which they perform according to their well-known way. Then it reached us some time later that its appearance and spread there had been due to the efforts of the learned sheikh, Imam Mufti and Sufi Jamal al-Din Abu Abdullah Muhammad ibn Said, no, known as al-Dabani. We heard that he had been in charge of the critical reviews of fatwas in Aden, which at that time was a job whose holder decided whether fatwas were sound or in need of revision, which he would indicate at the bottom of the document with his own hand. The reason for his introduction of coffee, according to what we had heard, was that some affair had forced him to leave Aden and go to Ethiopia, where he stayed for some time. There he found the people using kahwa, though he knew nothing of its characteristics. After he had found that among its properties was that it drove away fatigue and lethargy and brought to the body a certain sprightliness and vigor. In consequence, when he became a Sufi, he and other Sufis in Aden began to use the beverage made from it, as we have said. Then the whole people, the learned and the common, followed his example in drinking it, seeking help in study and other vocations and crafts, so it continued to spread." There is this, this is one account written by Al Jaziri of this guy, Dabani, who brings coffee from Ethiopia, where it still grows wild, actually, to the Yemen and discovers its properties, its uh, liveliness of the body. And this notion of helping Sufis in religious devotions, we find over and over and over again in these early texts. And it becomes an argument, actually, for why coffee should be licit in the Islamic tradition. Okay. There were all of these debates in the 16th century about whether or not coffee should be licit uh, in the tradition because it was seen to have uh, a function that was not necessarily supportive of the social order, let's say. People would accuse those who went into the coffee shops of perhaps fomenting sedition or having some kind of social disorder? And were they reputable or disreputable? And what about the coffee property itself? Was it an intoxicant? The uh -huh. Islamic tradition doesn't approve of substances that take away from the idea of divine remembrance. So we have supporters like Al-Jaziri who writes this um, text and says, this is all about divine remembrance. Look at the fact that these this it was brought from Ethiopia by the Sufi. And look at this guy who's actually in charge of fatwas. You know, he's if this guy was in disrepute, really you know, we would have to second guess this notion of, of whether or not coffee was licit in the tradition. So coffee, uh, actually, in one of his arguments, he says, and I have to read this because this yeah, is so 
so good that he, um, it's so interesting. He says, well, actually, um, one of the reasons that coffee should be licit is the following. Among some of the virtuous people in Yemen, some of them have said that there is a correspondence between the name of coffee, al-Kahwa, and one of the most beautiful names of God, al-Kawi. The mention of al-Kawi's numerical value has prevented harm to he who has mentioned it or he who has faced it. The total numerical value of the letters in al-Kahwa is 116, as is the value of the letters of al-Kawi. Look at that. The correspondence comes from the correlation of the calculation of the numerical values of the letters, 116, with what is in the baraka of his name, al-Kawi, in terms of warding away harm and the beneficial effects of its influence. So here, Jaziri says that the baraka, or blessing, is actually accorded to coffee through recognizing its relationship with a numerical correspondence between it and the name of God. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And indeed, recognizing this numerical correspondence will help to ward away evil. So in the Islamic tradition, coffee's sanctity then becomes tied to Sufi orders. We even have textual evidence of people in Sufi zikrs or notions of divine remembrance passing around cups of coffee so that they'll just have a little swig during their remembrances. Huh. And and what are remembrances? Oh, yes. So um, the Arabic term is called dhikr. And there are Sufi ceremonies that involve people getting together and chanting the name of God or using music to remember the divine. And there are 99 names of God in the Islamic tradition, and it's considered particularly meritorious to engage in these kind of supererogatory practices so that one can become closer to the divine. So the argument here is that if you are remembering the divine, it's considered meritorious. If you use coffee in helping to remember the divine, then there you go. If it's not an intoxicant and it will help in religious devotions. So for the remembrances, is it about memorization and being able to recite these things from, from memory, or is it simply about by saying the, these names, you're, you're remembering? Yes, by the latter. By saying okay. those names, you're remembering, yeah, or certain phrases, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So was it ever, was coffee ever banned from the religious? Yes. Okay. Yeah, in its genesis of coming to the Yemen and to Egypt and to Mecca, it did become banned periodically and then unbanned. Uh -huh. So in 1511, there are attempts to prohibit coffee in Mecca. In 1525, a jurist orders Meccan coffee houses closed. In 1526, that same jurist dies, um, and then the houses reopen. Okay. <laughs> and, and a similar thing actually happens when coffee comes in to Europe. And that happens in the 17th century. So in, in, in thinking about these origins of coffee, another really powerful origin myth that we see all the time is this idea of the goat herder Kaldi. And the origin myth is something like this, that there was either Ethiopian or Yemeni goat herder named Kaldi. And he takes his goats out one day. And these goats go and they 
see a coffee shrub and they start eating the beans from the coffee shrub and then they get super excited and Kaldi is like, well, what is going on here? And he says, I'm going to try some of these. So then he pops some of these beans and then he gets really excited and that's how he discovers coffee. One of the things that's really fascinating about the Kaldi story is that the Kaldi story, the first written account of it was by this guy, um, Faustus Nyren, who's writing in the 17th century. And he, he doesn't say that it is Kaldi, but he says that coffee is actually discovered by a Christian monk. Uh-huh. And so this notion of the Sufis become put by the wayside. Uh And so then this Christian monk then um, gives these beans to everybody in his monastery in order to stay awake for prayer, Uh which mirrors this Sufi heritage of Mm -hmm. coffee. And then he says that during their ceremonies, they give praise to the Turks for giving them this coffee, which is very huh. interesting. Okay, so was it given by the Turks or was it discovered by a Christian monk? Well, the, the history of this is <laughs> that it, it was domesticated and popularized by Muslims, though it is an Ethiopian beverage. It, you uh-huh. know, it still goes grows wild in Ethiopia. But it seems that so many people who discover coffee whether it's now or whether it's then, have a tendency to try and make it their own, uh-huh. which becomes really, really interesting. So I'm interested in a lot of these stories that take coffee and then kind of appropriate its origins. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so is that a big part of what your project is about? Yeah, so I'm actually looking at the ways in which coffee's origins become the fancy, I guess, academic term become re-signified. But I'm looking at the ways in which it's particularly tethered to ideas of Islam. So that's kind of the book, what, what I'm looking mm-hmm. at for the book. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Jamel Velji about Islamic origins of coffee and how the history of coffee gets appropriated by different cultures. He talks about when coffee gets introduced into European culture as a luxury item from the East. And one example comes from a famous Italian traveler. There is this guy, Pietro de la Valle, famous Italian traveler. He goes to the Levant, Syria, to Lebanon. And he says um, that, yeah, this is from uh, Pietro de la Valle's treatise. Parts of it become embedded within a famous 17th century treatise on coffee, coffee, uh-huh. tea, and chocolate, by this guy named Dufour, Sylvester Dufour. And there's this idea about extolling the virtues of coffee, thinking that it provides serious leisure. Uh-huh. And at the same time, they never really tie it to Ottomans. And so he says... If they, the Italians, should drink it with wine as they do with water, it will be the Nepenthe, the Homer mentions, 
which Helen drunk there, it being certain that Kahwa is brought hither from that country. And as this Nepenthe was a charm against cares and vexations, the same Kahwa to this day is used among the Turks as an entertainment and pastime, making the hours to slip away merrily in conversations, intermingling with their drinks several, several pleasant and recreative discourses, which unawares on their mind this forgetfulness of sorrows which the poet attributes to this Nepenthe. So there's this notion that it really is this substance of leisure that is not that is an ancient substance of leisure that doesn't really come from Muslims. It happens to be just incidental to that area. And we should get our hands on it so that we can also provide this to our people. So it being seen as a luxury item and as this kind of carefree thing is really different than using it in a religious context as part of a remembrance or as part of staying awake during prayers or, you know, being sort of having the mind stimulated. It's sounding more like an intoxicant. Yes. Yes. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And this is when it's introduced to Europe. Uh, Yes. This is um, 17th century. Um, And this is not to say that in Europe there were not debates about whether or not coffee was an intoxicant. Many... Uh, medical treatises in France were opposed to coffee. Some of them said, oh, this is going to give people paralysis and epilepsy and, and all of these things. And then there's this great legend about whether or not coffee should be listed in the uh, Christian tradition. And there's this great story about how the Pope, Pope Clement, I believe, is given a sample of coffee. He says, you know, let me see if this stuff is actually good uh-huh. or it should be allowed. And he drinks the cup of coffee and he really likes it. And he says, this is something that we actually have to make part of our culture. I don't think it's going to cause sinfulness or anything. So uh-huh. that's one of the ways in which coffee becomes domesticated too in the Christian tradition. So it's it's sanctioned, it's approved by the Catholic right. Church. Right, right. And there are stories, too, about how the Jews use it in 18th century to stay awake also during special ceremonies that are similar to kind of these nighttime remembrances in the Islamic tradition. Okay. So there's so many of these religious function stories that are intertwined with coffee. My guest is Jamel Valji. Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Claremont McKenna College in California. We'll be back after a short break with more from our conversation. Stay with us.
I'm Kate Young, this is Earth Eats, and I'm talking today with Dr. Jamel Felgi about his research into the Islamic origins of coffee. And one of the things he's looking at is the representation and the erasure of Islamic culture in the marketing of coffee in Europe and in the U.S. My favorite example of this is uh, there's a, a um, contemporary Viennese roaster named Julius Meinl. And Julius Meinl is a major purveyor of coffee in Europe. Julius Meinl's icon is this, they call it the Meinl Moor. It's this boy who has a fez on. And the Meinl Moor was, according to them, devised in 19, I believe, 1924 in order to market coffee. And the Meinl Moor starts out as an icon that is more kind of, well, let's say, I don't know, Ottoman, Arab in nature, kind of vague Ottoman and Arab. He's drinking a cup of coffee and he's his face is dark. And over the course of history, he becomes less and less associated with that part of the world. And he becomes, as they describe it, like the Baroque angels that are found in Viennese, uh, in Austrian architecture. Huh. And there's this really interesting thing, I think, that happens that is emblematic of the ways in which coffee is still kind of associated with the exotic, but it also becomes part of the domestic landscape. Mm -hmm. However, yet Julius Meinl's iconography is all over their shops in Vienna. It's today. Today, printed on everything from sugar packets to their cups. And so the Orient, or this vision of the Orient, is very much present still in coffee advertising. And this is not just Julius Meinl. In the 1860s, Hills Brothers and other major American Arbuckle coffee be began using images of the Orient to sell coffee. Mm -hmm. These kind of timeless images of landscapes with reds and kind of deserty colors, as well as trading cards that would be inserted in different coffee packages that and these these cards would actually talk about oh this is Egypt it has pyramids and you know here is what an Egyptian looks like but these are kind of stylized visions of the orient that kind of illustrate this exoticism of the commodity and along with this exoticism of the commodity ironically the same time in which the, in the same way in which one kind of portrays a Muslim figure, a figure that is from the Middle East or Ottoman or Turkey or, you know, some kind of the other, ironically, that representation can also result in a kind of effacement of individual communal identity through a stylized vision, right, right of looking at that icon and iconography. So even if the origins are being acknowledged, it's there's still an erasure because it's, like you said, stylizing or even stereotyping or putting some yeah, strange, totally. strange images with it that aren't necessarily acknowledging 
the history and the origins. Totally, totally. And and even if we look at coffee advertising today, the number of times you may read a description of the coffee that says exotic or that says like this comes from a particular terroir that is grown at a certain altitude. It has these flavor notes of this, 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 this. There's still this exoticism that is related to the ways in which even high-end purveyors of coffee like um, counterculture or temple coffee or Starbucks even sell their coffees. There's still this exotic kind of idea that you're the cup that you're drinking is from a faraway land and that you can still take part in being connected with this faraway land mm-hmm. by buying and drinking our coffee. It feels like you kind of have to do that today because there's such an emphasis and an interest in eating local and yeah. drinking local and having things that are coming from here. And since that's not really possible with coffee, we don't grow coffee in the United States. And I would think there's not much coffee grown in any European countries. And so you have to emphasize something else. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense that it would go with the reason this is attractive is because it's exotic and because it's from a faraway land. And maybe it's now the value is placed on knowing who that farmer is or having it be a single origin is another thing that seems to be important is knowing this bean came from one place and it's all the same bean and it hasn't been blended and it's, you know, and we know who the farmer is and we've got a picture of him, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's right. I think it would be cool if we could also talk about some of these local myths that are associated with, you know, not just talk about like what the farmer and the single origin, mm-hmm. maybe stories about what, how coffee is improving these local farmers' uh-huh. conditions, mm-hmm. and to to give a kind of more composite picture of the ways in which coffee is actually connect is is operating more locally uh-huh in those places in those places yeah, yeah. yeah. one of the really interesting things that i came across when doing this project was uh discovering that the icon for colombian coffee is juan valdez who uh, who's this kind of ubiquitous figure associated with Colombian coffee that was actually devised by the Colombian Federation of Coffee Growers to help sell coffee in a kind of inversion of what we see with advertising like Julius Meinl to give a face and a place and an image that is controlled domestically. Mm Mm-hmm by um, these coffee growers to to sell their coffee. Yeah. So do you feel like there's a time when, like when I think of where coffee comes from, mm-hmm. I don't think of the Islamic world. Mm-hmm. I think of Central or South America and I think of some African countries. Yeah. And that's just me being pretty ignorant. But like that's what, and then I remember, okay, well there's Arabica. Mm-hmm. So, but that's sort of, that's it. That's and I don't really I don't have that image connection. Yeah. When I started thinking about it, I, I can picture those those stylized images 
from past marketing yeah. of coffee, but not contemporary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't. Uh, this I don't think it's you being ignorant. I think that um, most people don't think about the Islamic origins of coffee. No. And I think that there are all of these other contributions made by Muslims to society that people don't think about either. I mean, yeah. the fountain pen or the hospital or like eye surgery or <laughs> fundamental components of our existence. And so the question really is, how is it that we don't see those as part of our everyday existence and it's not just contributions of muslims it's it's contributions of all sorts of other peoples yeah. and, and and there are many theorists who have written about why is it that the conditions of modernity seem to separate those elements and what is it about the past that seems kind of distant and foreign to us but i what i'm hoping with this project is that we can envision something that makes us think about those origins of coffee in our coffee cup. And and I'm not alone in doing this. I mean, I think I'm one of the few who's doing an Islamic history of coffee, but but there are coffee companies like uh, Question Coffee, and the company is literally called Question Coffee, huh? and it's based in Rwanda in Kigali. And they are a very interesting company that advocates for women coffee farmers. And the idea here is to illustrate, well, not only is this, can coffee farming be done by women, but we, there's also um, direct trade relationships that we have. And that, yeah, you should question your coffee. Uh-huh. You should question where it comes from. You should question how it's grown. You should question why um, that coffee is particularly good, but uh-huh. why why it, it tastes the way it tastes. Uh-huh. I guess I was just wondering if you thought in recent history or in recent American history, if that erasure of the Islamic origins or sources of coffee, as fear of Muslims has increased in mm-hmm. the United States, like has there been more of that? Or is this something that was way before that? I think it's way before that. Yeah. I think it's been ongoing, that Muslims have always been seen in this country as the other, mm-hmm. as foreign, and, and it's not just Muslims, it's all sorts of other yes. <laughs> people in the history of the United States. But I think that the unique thing about coffee is that because it's still um, it still has this heritage. There's still this connection that can be stylized between it and perceptions of Muslims, mm-hmm. which just further exacerbates this whole otherness uh-huh. about Muslims. In wrapping up our conversation, I asked Jamal Velji, what's at stake? Why does this project matter, especially for coffee consumers? One of the things that I think is really important is to realize that it's not actually just about coffee. The project actually gets us to think more about the global place of Muslims more generally, or at least that's my goal. And we can look currently 
at Muslim discrimination across the world. And, and I'm acutely aware that uh, there is discrimination that occurs amongst all sorts of people globally right now. But if we were to look at the ways in which Muslims are persecuted in China, for instance, or we can look at the crisis among the Rohingya, or we can look at the ways in which uh, Muslims are discriminated against in the United States, less so in Canada, but it still exists. We can look in Europe at the migrant crisis. Muslims are getting a particularly bad rap. And I think so much of this has to do with negative images Mm -hmm. of Muslims. So part of this project looks at the history of this misrepresentation and then examines how is it that we can be more responsible in representing these stories and representing the people who are behind this, both the people who think about it as kind of coffee being a substance that's tethered to Sufi zikrs, but also how is it that we can think about this history of misrepresentation Mm -hmm. among Muslims. Is there anything else you want to talk about, or is there anything that, in this research that you've been doing and in looking at this topic, is there anything that's really surprised you that you weren't expecting to come across? Yes. I've become really fascinated, and I didn't know, at how some of the earliest coffee houses in Britain and in France, 17th century, were places of emulation of the Orient. So one scholar, Brian Cohen, has written uh, a book on on the early British coffee house, and he describes these places uh, he says something. There are like something like thirty-seven coffee houses in London called the Turk's Head by um, the end of the seventeenth century, and and these places actually have baths in them. They are decorated opulently, and he says that these were places where people could actually experience consumer Orientalism. They huh. could go into these places and feel as though there was this luxurious ethos around them that was part of the Orient. Uh-huh. Uh, in, uh, and, and in another, that the first cafe in France, in Paris, Café Procope, the waiters would actually dress up as if they were from the Orient. They would dress up in this kind of Oriental garb. Huh. And there's still this legacy of Oriental type architecture in grand coffee houses in Europe. Even when coffee comes to France, there are accounts of the Sun King, Louis XIV, also kind of having coffee ceremonies in which Mm -hmm. he dresses up like somebody from the Orient. And so uh, to me, this is really fascinating to see how these two worlds are connected, but then to see how now they are so entirely conceived of as separate. That was Jamel Velji, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Claremont McKenna College. Okay. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. This, this was great. Oh, good. I'm, this, this was fun. <laughs> he spoke with us in the WFIU studios in November of 2018 when he was visiting the campus for a talk called Drinking the Orient, 
Meditations on Religion and Coffee, from the Yemen to San Francisco. Find more on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you're a fan of Earth Eats, you might enjoy the Earth Eats Digest. It's a weekly newsletter where I share thoughts on contemporary food issues, previews of upcoming stories, videos, and links to delicious recipes from the vast Earth Eats archive. It comes directly to your inbox. You can open it when you have time. It's a pretty quick read with plenty of photos. There's a link for signing up at eartheats.org. I hope you'll check it out. Thanks. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Knoblek, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Lucy Bradley and Jamel Velji. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.